This podcast is available in video at fpcgolfport.org and fpcgolfport on YouTube. Let me ask you a question as we, as we start out this morning. Do you believe it? Do you believe the Bible? Do you believe Jesus? Do you believe his book? Do you believe the promises that this book contains? Do you believe it? Do you have faith in these things? Do you believe what the Bible says from top to bottom, front to back? And if so, if so, why? Why do you believe it? Why do you trust in the book? Why do you trust in the God who gave us the book? Why do you trust in these things? And can you explain these things? Now, let's say you're not there. Let's say your answer is, well, I'm not sure if I do trust it. Let's say your answer is, I'm not sure that I do place my faith in this God and in his book. Whatever your position is, can you explain that position to others in a way that they can understand where you're coming from? Scripture regularly tells us that we need to be ready for those times, those seasons, when we're asked to explain and contend and defend the truth, to contend for our faith, to contend for what we believe. It is easy to nod one's head to propositional truth when someone else says it. It can be harder at times to share that truth ourselves. I knew a young man, this was a number of years ago, back before a seminary, and he was once asked, he was asked, why do you believe the Bible? Why do you believe this book from antiquity? Why do you believe the Bible? And the young man, he was put on the spot, he was asked to give a reason for the hope which was within him, and he answered this, he says, well, this is how I grew up, we went to church, dad read the Bible, this is just how I grew up. Now, I knew another man who was in that same circle of friends, and he was asked why he believed the Bible, and, and he said, well, the Bible, it, uh, it speaks to me. I feel, I feel better after I've read it. Now, let me ask you a question. Were those true answers? Well, sure. I believe they were true. I believe they were legitimate. Might they be your answers or mine at times? Well, possibly they may be. But are they good answers? Not so much. Not so much. And here's the reason why. If we appeal in the defense of our faith to something subjective, to some experience that we've had, some encounter we've had with God or with His Word, appeal to our past that we just grew up this way, that will not prove sufficient to those who are lost and are hurting and are looking for more, looking for something concrete. If you're to defend your faith in God or in His book based solely on how you were raised or how the book makes you feel or based on other subjective experiences, although those things might help you to explain your belief, your own personal belief to someone else, they are not likely to lead someone else to believe. Someone asks you why you believe in God's book. If you really want to help them in their own struggles perhaps to understand what the book is and what the book says, you need to be able to give them a good reason in that moment. And that's exactly what Peter is saying in today's text. Always, always, always be ready. Not 10 years from now, not five years from now, not next week. Always be ready to give a reason for the hope that's within you. Always be ready to do this. Now, with that said, do such reasons exist? Let's step back for a minute, because some people believe that they don't. Some people believe we have faith in faith. We have faith in the abstract, faith in some cosmic, ethereal God. Some people believe we have blind faith, which are two of the worst words put together in the human language. Some people believe these things. Well, do such reasons, do proofs exist for our faith? Are there concrete things we can point to? Are there data points and proofs and evidences that undergird and shore up everything we declare to be true in this building and throughout these doors or outside these doors? Well, here's the good news. Yes, there are. 
Yes, there are, and that's what we're considering here this morning. All right, if you would, please look with me again. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. We'll look at this text, and we'll just kind of work our way through the balance of the past. Verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats. Do not be troubled. All right. Let's rewind for a moment. Let's remember what this book is about, what this letter is about, what's going on here. Now, as you may recall from other studies in 1 Peter, 1 Peter was written to first century believers who were taking a lot of flack and persecution for their first century beliefs. In other words, the book of 1 Peter was written by Peter to the churches, to the people in the dispersion, in order to help shore them up, to strengthen them, to equip them, to let them know that, yes, suffering and persecution are real, but in the midst of that, they can't stand on the truth that was eyewitnessed by Peter and the other apostles. So there was many who were catching a lot of flack for their beliefs, and throughout the book of 1 Peter, Peter acknowledges the flack that they were getting. He says, I know about trials. He refers to trials. He refers to suffering. He knew that the life for his fellow saints in the first century, this was not lollipop lane they were going down. But he knew that siding with Jesus, running the flag of Jesus Christ up the flagpole, would attract heat, would attract persecution from a world that was opposed to that same Jesus. Now Peter was speaking, of course, from personal experience. This was not just conjecture. Some things in church circles you talk about theologically, it's kind of conjecture. This was not for Peter. Peter knew what he was talking about. Peter had suffered. Peter had been persecuted. Ultimately, remember, Peter would be martyred. History suggests he was crucified upside down. He knew something about persecution. And based on what he knew, based on his own suffering, based on his own experiences, Peter knew that when the world came against the door of first century Christians, second century Christians, 21st century Christians, he knew that when the world comes against the door of believers, it would come against them for two reasons. Number one, the world would not like what Christians believed. And number two, the world would not like how Christians lived on the basis of those beliefs. I mentioned earlier, it's an easy thing to nod our head or even say amen to propositional truth. That's easy. We can do that here. We can go home in our prayer closets and nod our head all day long. We can believe. We can even trust. We can even have confidence in our good sound doctrine and theology. And yet, the minute we take it outside those doors, it's not only our beliefs that will be problematic to the world around us. It's how we live according to those beliefs. And first century Christians being persecuted because their beliefs and their actions were not matching up with the expectation of those in Rome, Greece, and elsewhere. Well, in the face of the opposition, they were getting the very real heat that the first century Christians were getting, the very real persecution. In the face of all that, Peter's saying to them, verse 14, he's saying, look, if you end up suffering because of all this, if you end up raising the flag of King Jesus and people come at you because of that, if you end up suffering for righteousness' sake, know this, you are blessed. That's what he says overtly in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Even if your beliefs are rejected by the world, if your beliefs are rejected by the world, and if you stand for those beliefs, if you stand for those beliefs and you suffer for it, the encouragement of Peter is God's watching. He sees that and he values it. He values whatever sacrifice we might make. 
that I told the story in the first service. I'll share it here as well. A number of years ago, back in the early 1980s, my family, we lived in the San Francisco Bay Area. We lived not too far from Oakland. Now, one day, just prior to an Oakland Raiders game, kind of watching the crowd go by. And Oakland Raiders fans, I, I think, are well-known. They wear their black and silver and uh, white and the like. They wear their colors and, and all sorts of other accoutrements. They're loud and proud with regards to their team. Well, in, in this sea of silver, in the sea of black and the likes, there was one guy, one guy walking around with this jacket. It had a lightning bolt on the back. It was a sky-blue jacket for the San Diego Chargers. Now, as I watch this, I know dog in this fight. I'm a Bronco fan, so I didn't care less. But as I watch this, as I watch this go on, I watch this guy kind of weaving through the crowd, and everyone he encountered said something to this guy. Everyone he encountered had something, some critique, some of it kind of threatening, to be honest with you. When a guy approaches you wearing a Darth Vader mask and he wants to know why you're wearing a certain thing, that can seem a little daunting. So this guy, again, I'm kind of watching, watching all this, and this guy, he goes over, he goes over kind of behind a, a pole, and he takes off his jacket. He turns it inside out, and he puts it, he puts it back on. This man realized that his affiliation, this man realized that his affiliation was bringing him trouble. And so he thought if, if he was to hide that affiliation, make it less obvious, it could save him some trouble. With that said, in Peter's day, in the Apostle Peter's day, the, the Apostle Peter had watched as people had done the spiritual equivalent of the exact same thing. Turning their spiritual jacket, so to speak, inside out. So that others could not discern their faith in their king. Peter watched people who held to a, a Christian profession in their prayer closet and the like hide obscure their beliefs the moment that those beliefs brought about opposition. And that's why in verses 13 and 14, he addresses this. He says, look, even if the world hates you, know this, it hated Christ before you. And even if the world hates us for our beliefs, and even if we do end up suffering for what we believe to be true, we should not be troubled by this. We should not be surprised by this. We should not be afraid by this. And we should not turn our spiritual jacket inside out in the face of it. We should not do this. Now, before we move on, look at verses 15 and 16. Let me ask you a question related to that. Let's say that at some point in your life, let's say that at some point in your life, maybe it's down the road, your job, maybe your, uh, your reputation, your social standing, maybe even your life. Let's say that any or all of that was put on the line for your faith in Jesus Christ. Let's say that at some moment you would have a Martin Luther experience, a here I stand moment. Let's say that's appointed for you. We're called to stand and to testify for what you believe to be true. Well, in that moment, in that moment, whenever it should come, you need to be able to give a reason for your faith that's something more than just, I was raised this way. You need to be able to give a reason for your faith that's compelling. Will it change the hearts of the unregenerate apart from the work of the Holy Spirit? No, but it should be compelling. It should have data points and evidences attached to that. Let me ask you, could you articulate such a reason today? If someone was to stop you in the parking lot and say, give me a reason for your faith, give me the reason or set of reasons for why you hold to this God and to the book he has given us and trust in his son, give me a reason. Could you articulate that reason today? If today your faith was put on the line, could you articulate your faith in a way that explained the gospel, the gospel and the Bible with some clarity? 
with some conviction. That's going to be Peter's emphasis in our next few verses when he's going to say we have to always be ready to do that. All right, let's look at verses 15 and 16. Verse 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready. Not necessarily 10 years from now or 5 years from now or somewhere down the road when you become a super spiritual saint. Always be ready. Even if you have faith as a mustard seed, be ready to contend and give reasons for that mustard seed, for that faith. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense for anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's within you. And do so with meekness, with fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers... Sometimes even after you've given a reason, they'll still run you down. But when they do so, do so in such a way that when they defame those evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. It's not only giving a reason, contending for the faith, providing evidences and the like and support for why we believe what we believe, but doing it winsomely, doing it gracefully. Sharing your faith intentionally, yes, but doing so in a way that shows some compassion and love for the person you're sharing it to. That's what we see here. You know, back in the, in the second century, there was a man, a man named Polycarp. Polycarp. Now, as, as some of you may recall, Polycarp had been a student of the Apostle John. He was a student of the Apostle John, and, and Polycarp outlived John by some measure. And as Polycarp grew to be an old man in the faith, as he grew, he grew to also be a great defender of the faith, a great teacher of the faith. Now, when Polycarp was 86 years old, he was brought before the Roman proconsul and told that he needed to reject Christ and reject Christianity. Now, this wasn't the first time this had happened. Polycarp's faith had been under assault, under attack for year after year after year. Some uh, came at him with greater threats and the like, some with lesser, but he was regularly having to defend and contend for his faith. Well, by the time he was 86, there was a proconsul who was especially especially inclined to deal with Polycarp here. And he takes Polycarp, he brings him before him, and he threatens him. And the first thing he threatens him with is if you continue to speak for the name of Jesus Christ, if you continue to hold the faith, if you don't reject him, you will be devoured by beasts at my command. The wild animals that you can hear their growlings in the pit, they're coming for you if you don't deny Jesus. Well, Polycarp, 86 years old, this wasn't his first rodeo. He responds, no way. No way. So the proconsul comes at him again. The proconsul says, all right, if you don't deny Jesus Christ, if you do not deny him, then you will be placed on, a, on the execution pyre. You'll be burned, burned to death if you don't recant. Now, in response, Polycarp, in response, he's recorded to having had said this. This was his response as it's recorded to the proconsul at the time. He looks at the man and he says, look, you threaten me with a fire that burns only briefly. And after just a little while, it's extinguished. But, and this is where he uses this moment to teach the proconsul. He says, but, but you're ignorant of the fire that is to come. You're ignorant of the fire, of the coming judgment, the eternal, eternal punishment, which is reserved for the ungodly. Polycarp's faith was undergirded by a good knowledge and understanding of the gospel. A good knowledge and understanding of our problem through sin and the solution that's provided through the love and grace of Jesus Christ. He understood the problem and he phrased that problem to the proconsul. And he says, the fire, you've got plan 
it'll be over in moments. But you, you, dear sir, are in danger of something far greater. Well, the proconsul didn't like to be challenged in such a way, and so he ordered that Polycarp would indeed be burned at the stake. And just before, just before it was to be, to be lit, the proconsul told him, he says, reproach Christ, recant Christ, reproach Christ, and I will set you free. So there's Polycarp. He can now see the flames. It's no longer just speculation. He can see where he's about to die. He knows what's on the line. He knows what's about to happen. The heat is even now just prepared or on his near horizon. So he knows what's coming. And in that moment, he has a way out. In that moment, he has a door. There's an escape hatch. Proconsul says, recant, recant, and you will be spared. And Polycarp responded with the most famous line that's ever attributed to him. That line is this. He says, for 86 years, I've served him. For 86 years, I've served. I've served this Jesus, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my King and my Savior now? For 86 years, this God has loved me, has cared for me, has tended to my needs. He's carried me when I needed caring. He was patient with me when I messed up. For 86 years, He has done this. How in the world could I dare to blaspheme my King and my Savior now? Well, as uh, the records suggest that at that point, Polycarp climbs onto the pyre that's been prepared for him. And back in those days, in order to make sure that you stood firm, that you stood and couldn't jump out or move, or as soon as the fire got hot, you wouldn't jump out of it, they would nail you. They would nail you to the stake in the middle of it. Well, Polycarp refused that. He said, my God will give me the grace to stand. And so he stood, and he died for the faith. In today's reading, 1 Peter 3, the apostle Peter was speaking. He ministered earlier than Polycarp, but he's speaking to Polycarp and to the rest of us. And he says, a moment may come. It might not be that drastic. It might not involve a a stake and a flame. It might not involve that, but a moment's going to come, and you need to be ready in that moment to give a defense. Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is within you. Now, the person asking for that reason is not always going to be a Roman soldier. This past year was pretty bad, but unless 2021 gets even weirder than last year, it's not going to be a Roman soldier on on our horizon. The people who ask you for a reason for your faith, who ask you to defend and contend and give a reason for your faith, they may not be a Roman proconsul, they may not be an authority figure at all. That question might come from a child, your child. That question might come from a grandchild. Papa, why do you believe? Papa, why do we go to church? Papa, what's the Bible all about? Always be ready. Regardless of whether it's a Martin Luther or the here I stand moment at the Diet of Worms or whether it's a grandchild on your knee, always be ready to give a defense for the faith that was within you. With that said, that brings us back to the question we started this morning with. And that question is, do you really believe to begin with? Do you really believe that the Bible is true? Do you believe that the Bible is true? Do you believe what the Bible says about God and man? Do you believe what it says about Christ's atoning work on Calvary? Some folks will get that far and then they'll stop. But I would also submit to you, do you believe what the Bible has to say about science and history? What it says about marriage and gender and the like? Do you believe what the Bible says? And if you do believe it, can you explain it? with clarity and conviction. Let's linger on that last question for a little bit with our remaining time. 
there's a famous Baptist apologist, and he tells this, uh, this wonderful story of a young lady. She's a young lady. She's, she went off to college. I think it was in a philosophy class or something like that. She's off at school. She's in her class. They're talking about uh, all manner of different things, morality, life and death, and all this sort of stuff. And this young lady answers a particular question by pointing to Scripture. She answers a question in this very secular philosophy class by pointing to the authority of the Bible. Now, this was not the first time that the professor had heard that happen in his class. It wasn't the first time that someone had come in and pointed to the book, pointed to this 2,000-year-old book. And so the professor, he pushes back. He pushes back on this lady's faith, even ridicules the faith, and he asks her to defend it. You're making a case from this ancient, dusty old book. He asked her to defend it. Why did she believe this to be true? And he expected her to give him a weak answer because he'd heard weak answers before. Other students with a Christian profession had gone into this classroom and they had been unable to articulate a good reason in front of him and their peers. And he didn't think he would do any differently. Well, instead of providing a weak answer, the young woman, she said this, based on her apologetic training. She said this. She said, I believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They reported supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claimed that the writings are divine rather than human in origin. Furthermore, their claims are verifiable by historical, evidentiary, and archaeological support. By the time she was done with that statement, the professor's jaw drops to the floor and, and he said the equivalent to her of, I'm going to have to get back to you on that. He was the one now put on the spot, having to give a reason for his objection to Scripture. You know, one of the, I think I said earlier that there's some words in the English language that you really don't like to see strung together. Well, one of the silliest terms or phrases in all the English language is the two words, blind faith. Blind faith. If anyone ever accuses you of having that, look in the eye, tell them they're wrong, and then give them the reason why. There is no theologian of note. There's no apologist that has ever appealed to blind faith in of itself, apart from the ample evidence that God has given us in the natural and spiritual realms. Faith does not exist in a vacuum from facts. Faith and facts go hand in hand. Once again, let me, let me reread what this young woman said, and you'll see how faith and facts go hand in hand. She said, The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They reported supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies, and they claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. Furthermore, their claims are verifiable by historical, evidentiary, and archaeological support. Faith. Faith works hand in hand with facts, evidences, data points, and there's more than you can count. The apostles knew that. The prophets knew that. Prophet Isaiah says, Come, let us reason together. Come, let us reason together. Jude says, Contend for the faith that was once and for all given to the saints. Peter says, Give a reason here. Give a reason for what you believe. From one part of the book, one side of the book to the other, from the front to the back, top to the bottom, the faith of men like Abraham and Moses and Paul went hand in hand. Their faith went hand in hand with evidences that supported that faith. 
And that's why Peter was telling first century Christians, and you and I as well, to be prepared to give a reason for what we believe. A reason for our hope. Is there a subjective component? Sure. Sharing our faith oftentimes dovetails with telling our story and testifying to what God is doing in our own lives. And yet, it shouldn't be only subjective. Giving a reason for our faith should be able to point to objective things that have happened in real space and time and articulating that in a way that can be understood by those who refute it. They might still refute it, but they'll understand it better. You know, a couple of years ago, I had the amazing opportunity, the amazing privilege of being able to tour, uh, to tour Israel and uh, to see the, you know, the north end, the lush end, Galilee and the likes, and then go back down south, Jerusalem, the Dead Sea, the scrub brush and the like. Got a tour of the country, I think, from roughly one end to the other. And as we did so, there was all sorts of signs and, and markers, and they would point to everything. Every ruin, every archaeological site, every place of significance, every rock or, or tree stump, when anything had happened, they'd point you there and, and ask you to leave some money in a box. There's a lot of reasons why they did what they did. But there was a lot of places throughout the country that you could tour, that you could encounter things of antiquity. Now, things of antiquity are by themselves no big deal. we got old places here. However, the old things in this region had an interesting, wonderful common denominator. And that's the uncanny degree to which those rocks and tree stumps and ruins and buildings matched up with the biblical witness. To be able to see that when Scripture says such and such a place is located at XYZ, to be able to go to XYZ and see exactly what, what God has, has told you is there, that's faith building. And to see it not just once, but you could see it hundreds and hundreds of times around this country. And you could see the biblical witness shored up by the facts and the details and the very existence of ruins and rubble that speaks to what the Bible has to say. That's faith building. And it's not something that should always be peripheral to our knowledge. It's helpful to study some of these things. So we're able to give a reason. There's a mountains of archaeological data to support what we believe to be true here. There's mountains of it, literal mountains. And that's in, in addition, if we wanted to talk text criticism, that's in addition to the thousands and thousands and thousands of manuscript evidences we have that point to the veracity, the truth of this book. There is more manuscript evidence to shore up that what we have is what uh, was originally written down. There's more manuscript evidence to shore up and to support this book than there is of any other book of antiquity, any other book on any bookshelf anywhere. Even its critics know that to be true. Even its critics know there's more manuscript evidence to support the book that we now have in our hands than any other book that's ever been written. That's not incidental. Things like the Dead Sea Scrolls, that's not a small find. That has huge implications. The point is, we don't have this morning the, the time to present a fully orbed apologetic, but if you're looking for data points and evidences, they're there. They're absolutely out there. And the more you become knowledgeable of those things, the better you'll be able to give a reason for the faith that is within you. Now, I'll ask you one more question. With all of those evidences in mind, let's say we had them all before us. Let's say we had a mountain of all the evidences and data points and the like. Let's say we took all those mountain of evidences and data points and proofs and the like, and we put them in front of an unregenerate, unsaved individual. Would that mountain of evidences and proof in of itself be sufficient to convert the heart of that individual? I'm hearing some no's, and you're right. Not at all. You and I, we're not in the conversion process. That's the work of the Spirit. It's the Spirit who converts hearts. We have a role to play. We evangelize. We share the gospel. 
But we do not in of ourselves convert or convince anybody to the faith. The Holy Spirit converts and convinces the heart. What we must do is to be faithful. And whether God uses our ministry to save one person or a thousand people, we be faithful in giving a reason for the hope that is within us. All right, let's look at our final verse, verse 17. Verse 17. For it is better, if it's the will of God, to suffer for doing good rather than for doing evil. All right. Once again, the Apostle Peter, he he returns to the topic of suffering. It's not the first time, it's not the last time he's going to mention it in his writing. In fact, if you were to read past what we're looking at today, he goes on and talks about the suffering of Christ. So he returns to the topic of suffering, and he reminds his audience that living in a fallen world means there will be fallen consequences. As long as you and I live in a place where men and women drink down sin like it's water, as long as we live in, in a fallen world, As long as we live in a fallen world, we will be subject to fallen ills. Peter knew that firsthand. Peter watched the kindest, gentlest, most loving individual, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fully God and fully man. He watched this man come down and minister and teach and love and give to men and women across the the whole region. He watched this man show an incredible grace. And you know what else he watched? He watched the same world that this man came to, the same world that this God came to, crucify him only a few years later. Peter knew this is a fallen world. A sort of world that lights a man like Polycarp on fire. It's a sort of world, last week we talked about Pastor Schweitzer of Murmansk in Russia. It's the same world that extinguishes the graceful pastor's song. Peter knew this world is bad. The T in, in total depravity is real. He knew that this world hates good and loves evil. And he knows as long as you and I live here, we'll be subject to that evil. And we shouldn't be surprised when it happens. We shouldn't be surprised when it happens. But in due time, Peter also knew that the story ends well. You know, in due time, God will vindicate the righteous. In due time, he'll right all the wrongs. All right, as we look to wrap up here this morning... As I was thinking back to Polycarp, as I was thinking about that in the conclusion of the, of the sermon, I, I couldn't help but wonder, as you think about Polycarp, you have this guy and, and he's there and he's he contended with the proconsul. They've gone back and forth. And ultimately, Polycarp stood his ground even to the point of death. The proconsul saw all that. He heard Polycarp's faith. He heard his declarations. And he realized in the moment that the level of conviction, as Polycarp died unbound to the stake, the level of conviction that, that Polycarp had, wouldn't it have been fascinating, wonderful, if God used that encounter, if God used the circumstances to be one of the means to lead this proconsul, this individual, to faith? I'm sure Polycarp would have been well pleased if that would have happened. Now, we don't know that that did. Maybe he was saved, maybe he wasn't. Maybe his heart only grew harder. Maybe his heart only grew harder like Pharaoh or or Pilate, not that far before him. But whatever the case, whatever the case, he knew this. Whether his heart was saved or generated or he died in his sins, he knew this, that this man Polycarp would come before him, that he had been faithful to the end to what he believed. He might have still rejected every one of those beliefs, but he knew this man was faithful to what he held to be true. Polycarp was faithful. And in the end, that's our responsibility. That's the takeaway we should have from this text. Again, we aren't the Holy Spirit. We don't or can't, in of ourselves, convert any heart based on our own volition and our own words. That's the purview of the Holy Spirit. Converting, convincing, regenerating, that's what the Spirit does. We don't do those things. 
You and I can no more convert a dead heart on the basis of our own words or arguments than we can uh, convince a, a blind man about the properties of the color purple or something like that. We can't do it. Dead hearts, blind eyes, deaf ears, these things, they belong to the Holy Spirit to change. But although, although we cannot affect conversion of our own volition and of our own words, although we can't do that, we can and should be faithful in whatever encounters presented before us in sharing the gospel. When the opportunity presents itself, for some of us, it might even be this week, when the opportunity presents itself, Scripture's call today is to be prepared, to be equipped, to be edified, to give a reason, and then to give it. To stand tall for the faith, to not turn our jacket inside out, but to fly the flag of Jesus high, come what may. Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 11 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.